Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 14th of June, 2023. Coming up in the next 90 minutes, we're looking at the National Railway Network. You might remember the beaching cuts, or things are changing. We're hearing about uh, the art of bespoke scissors, and that mainstay of the fashion world, slippers. We're visiting Liverpool and hearing another short story from Cynthia Townsend. All that plus our usual features. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. For the first time last weekend, the public got a glimpse of what a new environmentally friendly public transport system in Coventry could look like. A very light rail vehicle went on display at Motorfest at the weekend, with Coventrians invited to step inside and even try out the technology used to train drivers. But a senior city councillor has said the long process of getting government funding for the Coventry Valley Light Rail is frustrating and spoke of fears that it could even delay the scheme. 36.8 million is needed to help fund a two-kilometre demonstrator track through Coventry City Centre to prove the council-led scheme is feasible. The money was agreed by the West Midlands Combined Authority Board and went to the Department of Transport for final sign-off in mid-January. But only a small amount of this has been released so far and the council is still going through the so-called staging post to get it. The VLR project was launched seven years ago and aims to develop a cheaper and easier to install tram system for Coventry and potentially other cities. A light vehicle and ultra-thin track have already been produced from research and development which cost just under £15 million mostly using money from the former Coventry Local Enterprise Project. Asked about government funding, Councillor O'Boyle said he is confident all the money will be granted in time, but is frustrated at how long it is taking, and suggested the delay will impact on the scheme. Officers are having to go back and forth to the Department of Transport to respond to their inquiries, he told the local democracy reporting service. We think they're being unreasonable. It's very frustrating and complicating. Bureaucracy adds extra layers of cost to the whole scheme. Councillor O'Boyle said he hopes the demonstrator track will start going down next year. But as it's subject to government funding, he couldn't give a timescale. Last month he hit out on a lack of clarity over funding for the scheme and called on the government to trust us to deliver. He said innovation requires ambition. Now we need the government to trust us to deliver. We can save you tens of millions of pounds if you invest early to get very light rail up and running. A £150 cost of living payment is set to be made to people in Coventry and Warwickshire later this month. 
You do not need to apply for the funds and they will appear automatically in your bank account. An update on the official cost of living payments, 2023-24 page, however, adds, If you receive a disability cost of living payment, but we later find that you're not eligible for it, you may have to pay it back. This advisory comes after a new fraud and error in the benefits system report, estimated that £410 million, 4.9%, in cost of living payments across all benefits were overpaid during the 2022-2023 financial year. The total UK government expenditure on cost of living payments last year was £8.4 billion. To be eligible for the £150 payment, you must be in receipt of one of the benefits listed here. Attendance allowance, constant attendance allowance, disability living allowance for adults, disability living allowance for children, personal independence payment, adult disability payment in Scotland, child disability payment in Scotland, Armed Forces Independence Payment and War Pension Mobility Supplement. A smelly old car park in Coventry could be turned down so a new one can be built as motorists face a squeeze on parking spaces in the city centre. Plans to demolish New Union Street car park and put up a 150-space temporary surface car park in its place have been revealed by the City Council. The 1970s car park has been called awful, smelly and an eyesore by online reviewers. The council dubbed it outdated in a new report this week. Back in 2017, the city council's assessment of the car park said its lift hadn't been in use for a few years and is beyond economical repair. Not only is there ample evidence of antisocial behaviour taking place within the car park, but it is considered that it does not in any way reflect the need or design of a modern car park, the report said. The car park was closed by the council along with five others in 2021, after COVID-19 caused a financially unsustainable drop in demand for city centre spaces. The city centre now has 304 fewer spaces than in 2019, as seven car parks have shut and just two new ones at Salt Lane and the station have opened. This figure will rise to just under a 1,000 when the City Arcade and Barracks car parks shut for the City Centre South scheme in 2023-24. At the moment, less than 50% of available parking spaces in the centre are occupied on a typical day. But putting a new car park at New Union Street will help ease pressure on other facilities when the other two car parks close. The plan to knock it down is expensive, however, and will cost the council an estimated 971000 including just under 800000 on demolition. Another consideration is the future use of the site including neighbouring surface-level Childsmore car park, also closed to the public since 2021. In 2017, the council agreed to look into a business case for building a new multi-storey car park on the land, as both car parks were in poor condition. The work was stopped due to uncertainty caused by the pandemic, 
but current plans for new Union Street refer to the overall site as a key corridor to the city centre and an ideal location for other uses. Funding for the 971,000 project will come from capital receipts from the Cox Street car park land disposal, officials say. Reviewers disagreed on the parking fees, with some calling it cheap and others expensive. But there was praise for its handy city centre location. One reviewer, Guy Rahorn, wrote, Drab, tight, smelly, cold are all good words to describe this ancient car park. Lifts haven't worked in years, so beware if you have mobility issues, because they don't tell you this on the way in. He added, I'm hoping that once the new wave multi-storey car park opens, this eyesore will be demolished and rebuilt. Parliament will hold a debate on the collapsed Coventry City of Culture Trust as a local MP calls for answers. Coventry North West MP Taiwo Owatami is raising an adjournment debate on government support for Coventry City of Culture Trust today. This type of debate takes place for half an hour at the end of the day's sitting, allowing a backbench MP to raise an issue and get a response from a government minister. It comes days after news that public spending watchdog the National Audit Office will be looking into government funding and oversight of the Trust. The Trust was a charity set up to run Coventry's City of Culture Year and a planned three-year legacy programme. It received millions of pounds in government funding and a £1 million loan from Coventry City Council last year. But the organisation went into administration in February and is unlikely to repay over £4 million to its creditors, who include several Coventry groups. Most notable is the City Council, which is owned £1.6 million. Labour MP Ms Owatami said she's pleased to get the debate and hopes it will highlight the impact of the trust collapse on groups in the city. She also said there's a need for the organisation's finances to be transparent and called for people who oversaw mistakes to be held to account. I hope that this debate will help to draw further attention to the impact that the collapse of the trust has had on local people and organisations in Coventry, as well as the ongoing need for transparency regarding the trust's finances. The City of Culture brought huge investment and opportunities to Coventry, enhancing our growing cultural sector. It's a great shame that such a positive landmark for our event for our city has been tainted by the mishandling of the finance, trust finances from within and the failure to deliver the planned legacy programme. Those who oversaw these mistakes must be held to account and made to provide the answers that people in Coventry deserve. A Coventry business has been ordered to stop making false claims that its food supplements could cure symptoms of ADHD. Dosha Limited was ordered by the Advertising Standards Agency to stop stating that its supplements could prevent, treat or cure human disease. The ruling came after the business of Number 1 Church Muse, Bennett's Road, Coventry, began selling food supplements on a web page for attention and hyperactivity supplement bundles. On the web page, the company said, We bundle these food supplements together to support individuals who identify as neurodiverse. 
and may be on the autism spectrum. A number of specific product listings also made inaccurate claims. A product called Lion's Mane, Mane Zinc Omega Magnesium and Chocolate Protein Drink Bundle claimed it may reduce deficiencies for some neurodiverse people who have a proclivity to lose attention or are hyperactive. Dosher said it was a micro-organisation that resold food supplements from a manufacturer and did not hold any stock. It added that the manufacturer created the brand labels for them to use and used the manufacturer's descriptions and certifications on its own website. After being notified of the complaint, Dosher removed all food supplements from their website and said it would not sell them again. Davina Blackburn's strategic lead for regulation said, We hope this ruling will send a message to other food businesses in Coventry that you need to ensure any health claims made about food or supplements are authorised and not misleading to customers. A sophisticated Coventry gang which supplied several kilos of drugs and laundered over a million pounds has been sentenced to more than 60 years behind bars. Members used phones to coordinate their illegal dealings until officers from the West Midlands Regional Organised Crime Unit were able to decipher from messages exactly who was involved. The gang of five, including a father and son, all played some role in a large-scale operation to supply cocaine, cannabis and amphetamines and to launder cash between March and June 2020. Michael Brown Jr. is now wanted after failing to attend trial at Birmingham Crown Court. The 28-year-old was convicted of supplying drugs and laundering large sums of money in his absence and jailed for 24 years on May the 30th. His details have now been circulated to law enforcement bodies across the world. He faces even more time behind bars when caught and fully brought to justice, West Midlands Police said. Chief Inspector Peter Cook said... This is part of our ongoing work to destroy drug networks and criminal gangs and this will carry on as part of Operation Target. Michael Brown, senior, 61, of Burners Close Tile Hill, pleaded guilty over the supply of class bleed drugs and was jailed for three years and nine months. Records from his son's phone showed that they were not only working together to supply many kilos of cannabis, but the drugs came via their own production. Jake Nielsen, 33, also of Berners Close, admitted the supply of Class A and Class B drugs and money laundering. He was jailed for 19 years and 9 months. Keelam Doherty, 30, of Shakespeare Street, Stoke, was sentenced to 8 years and 6 months after admitted, admitting supplying Class B drugs and money laundering. Callum Hewitt, 26, of Frederick Neal Avenue, Upper Eastern Green, pleaded guilty to supplying cocaine and was jailed for eight years. E-bike incidents are putting people off visiting Coventry City Centre, according to a local business group. Areas for walkers are being infiltrated by e-bike riders and coming into contact with vulnerable road users more often, the group said. It's part of rising concern over riders of the high-tech cycles, and Coventry City Council is planning a crackdown as a result. 
Lindsay Smith, Deputy Manager of Coventry's Business Improvement District, highlighted e-bikes as a growing issue. She was responding to council plans for a new public space protection order, which aims to reduce antisocial behaviour in the centre. She wrote, The past year has seen a rise in the number of e-bikes within the city centre, especially as they are being used as a mode of transport for companies who deliver food orders for our hospitality businesses. This has resulted in pedestrianised areas being infiltrated by e-bike riders. We work to make the city centre accessible to all visitors, and it has been highlighted that e-bike incidents heavily contribute to the reasons why some of Coventry's residents feel reluctant to visit the the city centre to shop. Ms Smith added, We note and have been consulted with regards to the proposals by Coventry City Council and West Midlands Police to address the growing issue of e-bikes in the city centre. We support the measures being taken and hope they are successful and see a change in behaviours of those using e-bikes in the city centre. We support the renewal of the existing order, but would ask that the situation with regards to e-bike usage in the city centre is monitored and acted on as appropriate. Street Enforcement Manager Simon Hutt, who manages the Council's enforcement offices in the city centre, said dealing with bikes isn't easy. There are some practical difficulties with enforcing aspects of the order, he wrote. A new three-year public space protection order for the city centre is due to come into force next week if it is approved by the Council's Cabinet. Tens of thousands of visitors have been flocking to an exhibition in Coventry. Divided Cells, a community art exhibition exploring ideas of identity, community, nationhood and conflict, will enter its second phase at Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry next month, with two new visual installations and a temporary exhibit in Coventry Cathedral. Running since February, Divided Cells has already become one of the most visited temporary exhibitions in the gallery's history, and Dippy, the life-size Diplodocus replica on loan from the National History Museum for the next three years, has been credited with encouraging the record footfall. The exhibition, which will conclude on September the 24th, features work from the British Council Collection and the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum's collection, with its curator Hamad Nassar featuring revered artists from a range of backgrounds working across a host of mediums, including Turner Prize winners. It's really exciting, said Nazar. We've seen people of all ages visiting the gallery with one thing in mind and leaving having had a window into other worlds and perspectives. By coming to see Dippy, whatever their interest, discipline or background, people are acting on their national, natural curiosity about a world that stretches far beyond themselves, and divided selves is an extension of that. There's something for the historian, geographer or art lover to get to grips with, but there's also a human element that we can all find important. Split across four galleries, the first part of the exhibition addresses nation-states and historic anniversaries of partitions and subsequent violence, while the second pays attention to cultural narratives that create resilience and reinforce identities through community. This week's new immersive and digital works will feature in the two remaining galleries. 
Memorial to Lost Words, a sound installation at Coventry Cathedral by Annie Bani Abidi, features archival letters originally written by Indian soldiers who served mm-hmm. in the First World War, printed on vinyl attached to the windows of the Chapel of Christ the Servant. A house has been left severely damaged following an early morning fire that left dozens of homes without power. Crews from Nuneaton and Coventry stations raced to the scene in Kersley last Sunday. Warwickshire Fire and Rescue Service confirmed that a 999 call was made just after 5.10am to report the huge blaze. When firefighters arrived, they found the house completely engulfed in smoke. Fortunately, no one was injured in the incident, and West Midlands Ambulance Service were not called to the scene. But as a result, National Grid reported that 61 homes in the CV78JN and CV78JP were left without power for several hours. The power was later restored to the homes. Investigations are now ongoing into the cause of the blaze. A Warwickshire Fire and Rescue spokesperson said, At 5.11am, Warwickshire Fire and Rescue Service was called to a house fire at Kersley End. Two crews from Nuneaton Fire Station and one from West Midlands Fire Station attended, and on arrival, crews found fire on the ground floor with approximately 100% smoke damage. The firefighters extinguished the fire, ventilated the property, and National Grid was informed. The crews were at the scene for more than two hours. Finally, National Grid isolated electrics. A Coventry landlord who failed to provide information about one of his properties when asked by the local council has been fined. A failure to hand over documents landed him with a fine of over £700. An environmental health officer from Coventry City Council inspected a property on Northumberland Road on June the 1st, June the 21st, 2022. As part of its investigation into potential breaches of housing legislation, the local authority served the landlord with a requisition for information notice and a notice to produce documents. Coventry City Council said the landlord failed to respond and was found guilty in their absence at Birmingham Magistrates Court. A hefty fine of £440 was issued, with the landlord also ordered to pay £85 in court costs and a victim surcharge of £176. Councillor David Welsh, Cabinet Member for Housing and Communities, said This prosecution sends a clear message to landlords that such notices should be taken seriously and that the council will not hesitate to prosecute those who choose to ignore their legal obligations. Davina Blackburn Strategic lead for regulation added, Coventry City Council is committed to improving standards of private sector housing accommodation across the city. A decision on whether a new neighbourhood on the former Daimler car factory site in Coventry will go ahead is set to be made in weeks. Known as Daimler Wharf, the proposal would see new homes, a creative quarter and community spaces built on Sandy Lane. An outlying planning application for the huge project, which has been five years in the making by Warwickshire-based property and development company The Wigley Group, was submitted in 2021. It has been confirmed that the application is now scheduled to be debated by members of Coventry City Council's planning committee this summer. 
The first phase of the Daimler Wharf scheme has already been completed, with the refurbishment of the Daimler Powerhouse Building, the only part of the car factory to survive Second World War bombing into a creative hub. But planning permission is needed for what has been described as a new neighbourhood for living and work, culture and leisure in the Radford area of the city. Not only will the plans breathe life back into what was the world's oldest car factory, it has been said that Daimler Wharf will also link the Moorings housing development and Electric Wharf to the Coventry Canal Basin and the city centre. It is currently an industrial site and we could have redeveloped it for commercial use, which would have been swifter and more cost-effective. But the site is so important strategically as it is the one missing link to the canal basin and the city centre, that we didn't feel it right to do that, Mr Wigley said. The development will include a mixture of one, two and three bed homes, flexible live-work homes and 1,200 square metres of space for commercial, arts, leisure and community activities. Daimler Wharf will also have a linear park and two public squares that will act as focal points for the new community. There will also be direct pedestrian and cycle links through the new community to the Coventry Canal as well as into the city. Coventry Sacred Heart Catholic Primary School's outdoor play and learning facility has been recognised as one of the best in the country. The school's facility has become the first in the city to be awarded outdoor play and learning platinum status, placing it in the top 1% in the UK. School staff worked with an Opal member, mentor, ahead of launching the play area last May. The mentor showed teachers how to make the most out of a range of play zones, including a water area with a bath and taps, a mud kitchen, a construction zone, a sand pit, quiet spaces, music areas and a woodland trail. The play and learning areas aim to improve youngsters' health, well-being and fitness, which will help them to learn more effectively when they return to the classroom. Sacred Heart was the first school in Coventry to sign up for Opal. Sacred Heart school teacher Sophie Newman said, During their seven years at primary school, children spend 1.4 years on average at play. We signed up with Opal as we wanted to ensure that all of our children experience amazing play opportunities every day. We're incredibly proud of this achievement and we're now looking forward to building on this with some more exciting projects in the pipeline. Bands in the Park has returned to Coventry this summer to provide music for those in the city. The series of performances takes place from June through to September across parks throughout Coventry. The first performance was last Sunday by the Brass Band of Central England, formerly the Jaguar Land Rover Band, which took to the stage in the War Memorial Park, the first of ten concerts to be held throughout the summer. The concerts will be held every Sunday from June to September and are free to attend. The final performance will be carried out by Cubbington Silver Band and will take place in Caledon Castle Park. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Coventry City Council's Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Parks, said, 
I'm always pleased to be able to welcome back this much-loved series of mini-concerts for people to get out into the fresh air and listen to some great music. Bands in the Park always welcomes the arrival of summer, and what better way is there to spend an afternoon than in one of our stunning parks enjoying some fabulous entertainment. I hope everyone enjoys this great series of free events and continue to enjoy all our lovely parks across the city. For up-to-date details of the schedule, bands and parks taking part, please visit www.coventry.gov.uk forward slash bands in parks. Outlook News Thanks to Elaine uh, and myself, of course, uh, for reading the news. Sounds a bit old, that, I know. Um, moving on. Uh, sunrise uh, this week is at 4.45am and sunset at 9.29pm. Now, to our weekly look at news from the Resource Centre. Here's Hugh. Thank you very much, Pete. We have, well... Only a little bit to talk about this week, a few things. Um, so just a reminder uh, that now we have our shop event, uh, next shop event coming up in June. Actually, that's on the 24th of June, so it's a couple of Saturdays away and uh, we'll be... Lots of stuff going out in the car park. It's called Midsummer Madness because it's quite close to mid- Midsummer. Uh, there'll be lots of clothes. We've, got, we've had a good lot of really nice jewellery come in, actually, and it's, uh, some of that will certainly be out that day as well. So if you like a bit of bling, I would certainly suggest coming along uh, to that. So the event runs from 10 till 3, I think. Uh, or until we've had enough, frankly. Uh, then, next after that, we have the Summer Garden Party, which I told you about last week, and indeed in previous weeks you've had that. Uh, that's Saturday the 22nd of July. Uh, we've had plenty of things uh, come in for the Tombola and the uh, and the uh, raffle, but uh, we can still do with them more. So if anybody uh, fancies contributing, small and bottle-shaped things will go into the tombola. Other larger things probably will go into the raffle. Uh, so there's that. Now, we were very pleased last week. Um, whenever Joe gets some money um, uh, for the charity, uh, she's uh, she managed to get it from the uh, from a, a grant funder, uh, we have a pretend bell that we ring. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, like they used to do in the old sales rooms when you get a major, <coughs> major order in. And uh, we rang that bell um, a couple of Fridays ago. Well, we thought we did. Um, there is an organisation called Global. Now, you may not have heard of Global, but you have heard of Classic FM. And Classic FM is owned by Global, and it's a big, big media company. And uh, they run a charity programme called Global Make Some Noise. And uh, every year they support a number of charities. Last year it was 60 charities. This year it's 40 charities out of the whole country. And guess who is one of those charities this year? We are so delighted. Um, the funding is to the tune of, we hope, £30,000, which will be, uh, which we won't get, wouldn't get till next year or next April probably. Um, in the meantime though, 
because this is the modern world and nobody gives you out for out, um, we may have to do quite a lot of publicity surrounding the uh, award of the grant and uh, talk about the work that we do. I mean, it's it's great opportunity for us to up, up our marketing game a bit, but um, but also it will certainly ensure that we can uh, get hold of this money. It's slightly they haven't raised the money yet. They have a massive, they're going to have a massive, great big uh, fundraising day across Classic FM and all the other outlets that they have um, uh, in October. Uh, and part of that may well be, we might even get somebody famous come to, come to the centre and, 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 and interview people here. But why I'm mentioning this to you is that uh, what they really want is stories. They want stories about how how people have, how, how the centre, how the charity has helped people to, to manage a bit better, to, to get on, to be, um, to be, uh, manage their sight loss better, really, to, and, you know, how, how we hope we may have improved your lives as a, as a corporate organisation. Uh, so, if you think you might have an interesting story to tell, don't tell us the story, but let us know that it would be, uh, that, that you would be happy to talk about it if you are. Uh, we also, obviously, we know quite a lot of people, we know everybody who comes here pretty well, so we, we know quite a lot of your backstories as well. So if, you know, if we think that uh, yours might make a good story that we can use to support the marketing effort, if that's all right with you, we would like to make an approach uh, and uh, maybe, you know, you, somebody will come and talk to you about 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 your sight loss and, and about the centre. Uh, it would be a great help if you could do that for us. Um, so we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, if you would like to do that, either drop a drop a note to me or leave a note with, uh, for me at reception um, or when you see me or with Joe Joe Dickey um, because uh, she's obviously leading on that. Now uh, the final thing that I want to talk to you about is that um, this summer. Um, the International Blind Sports Federation World Games are coming to Birmingham. And in fact, Birmingham, in this case, also includes a bit of Coventry. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, because it does. It did, I, I think it did for the, uh, for the uh, uh, Commonwealth Games as well, didn't it? Quite a lot. Anyway, mostly centred around um, the University of uh, Birmingham and um, and Edgbaston, but um, in Coventry in August uh, there will be uh, at the CBS Arena Gold Ball, the Gold Ball tournament. Uh, Gold Ball, if you don't know, is a game specifically designed for visually impaired people, um, and it's got a and it's got a ball with a bell in, and apparently absolutely fast and furious. Uh, so. Um, we were thinking that it might be fun if we might get a group together to go and see that um, in August. I can't promise I'll be there actually myself because I might well be might well be away on me on me holly bobs. But uh, but if you know if you'll be interested in going that and say we're just asking for expressions of interest. If you'd be interested in going along and having a look at the gold ball um, uh, tournament, I think that'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it? So uh, let us know. I'll get Heather to draw up one of her famous lists and uh, you can put your name down on one of those lists. Uh, and if Heather's not there, then Carol will take your name down. And that, dear friends, I think is it for this week. Thanks, you. And now we turn to Dave with your postbag. This is postbag.
the discussion. Hi there, welcome to your postbag. And we start with some comments from Graham about the Sky Blues' sad ending in their bid to get back into the Premier League. Well, the Sky Blues didn't quite do it. It is sad that he has to go to a to a penalty shootout. Um, he's in the look of the gods, really. Um, but what else can you do when a situation reached stalemate? They can't stay on the pitch forevermore. But as was said, already said, that, um, you know, Luton were above the Sky Blues in the, uh, in the division, in the league. So it was probably a fair result on reflection. But I just hope it doesn't break the uh, Sky Blues' momentum. Um, very often when a team gets to the playoffs, if they miss out the following season, they drift back down to the bottom of the division and they can't repeat it. I do hope that doesn't happen. I do hope they can, let's say, keep it up and um, probably do it without having to play in the um, in the playoffs, which is a bit nerve-wracking. <laughs> anyway, I wish them the best of luck. Well, on a different but familiar subject to you, Graham, I met Richard Smith, who was organising the cycling on the ring road at the Coventry Cycle Fest that Graham and I took part in. And he told me that he has taken part in your meetings for the National Federation of the Blind, which he talks about. They do their meetings online now, so so I I joined one of their meetings um, uh, to talk about um, cycling projects that are coming up, and we had a nice, uh, very constructive chat. And um, yes, it was it was uh, I say a nice bunch of people. They're very very constructive discussions, and um, yeah. Um, Well, I know Graham. Hi, Graham. Um, yes, it's um, um, yeah. I, I think it was um, a, it's a few months back that we did the call, but um, um, as I say, we'll um, uh, we've got um, in terms of uh, where the um, uh, some of the members live and where Vista based. There's a project going on um, uh, in Ilsden at the moment, so there's lots of community engagement, and I, th- and, I th- and I did specifically say to them, uh, uh, make sure you speak to the NFB and Vista because they're based on uh, Ilsden Avenue South, and it's to do with um, um, how to make the streets safer in the area and a nicer it's a nice area already isn't it but how to make it even nicer and the whole point is rather than coming in and saying we want to do XYZ is asking the people who actually live there um, what they would like to um, what they would like in the area and then working together to come up with proposals and then coming back to the community which will be happening again relatively soon and saying um, you know based on what you said this is what we've come up with what do you think of those ideas so um, so that's um, uh, it's quite you know an involved process um, but the point is it's, it's their neighbourhood so we want to make it right for them and um, so yeah there's um, uh, lots of good stuff happening well like the National Federation of the Blind Edwina tries to make life easier for her visually impaired friends and here she is with another tip for you hi everybody it's Edwina I'm just giving you a little tip that I've found very useful now I don't know whether when you open your bottle of milk, sometimes you put the plastic top down and you go to pick it up and you knock it on the floor. And can you find it? No. So, I'm giving you a tip of what I do now. I always put a spare top in my kitchen drawer. 
So when you've used the bottle, just shave on the top, wash it and put it in the drawer and it'll be there if you're in that situation. Keep smiling everybody. Bye. And while Edwina makes it easier to find a milk bottle top, Julia's friend John wants to know, where's my friend Julia? Here I am waiting for Julia and she hasn't arrived. What has happened? Maybe she's gone on an expedition to the North Pole or shopping to Nuneaton. Same thing, really. Has she been abducted by aliens? Nobody knows. Well, Uncle Hugh probably does. I think he knows almost everything. I reckon she's gone on the hen night with best buddy Eva and Wendy the Warden. Perhaps she's got drunk and been arrested again. Actually, I remember now, she told me last week she was going to have a week off. She never said why. I think it's a secret. Julia likes her secrets. I don't think she trusts me. Uh, she thinks I'm an old ne'er-do-well. She's right about the old bit. Come to think of it, she's right about the ne'er-do-well bit too. My mottos are, never put off till tomorrow, something you can put off till next week. Or I'll do it tomorrow, like I said yesterday. I wonder why I forgot she wasn't coming round this week. She said I never listened to her. That's another thing she got right. It must hurt. Being so perfect, I wouldn't know. Normal service will be resumed next week. Take care, Julia's friend, John. Well... Never fear, John, she's turned up in postbag, telling you about the freedom of the open road that you might like to take up. Her report is entitled, Four Rides on My Tandem, and I'm still rolling along. The first was just after April Fool's Day, but my friend John was somewhere else, so I went to the Green Man in Kenilworth and Steve was my pilot instead. We sat outside the pub because they wouldn't let us in, but we didn't get drunk or get arrested. The next ride was to Meriden with Lawrence because Steve wouldn't ride with me again, and I got the wind up on the way back. I met somebody famous, the lovely Chris Norman, and his equally lovely dad Paul. The third ride was with Lawrence again, and we went to the Three Horseshoes in Bubbenhall. I wonder why it's called the Three Horseshoes. Maybe the horse hopped. On the final ride, I ditched Lawrence for Chris Homer, who is far better looking, and we went to the Bull's Head in Marston. Have you noticed that we always go to a pub? It makes the journey home so much more interesting. I like my tandem, it keeps me fit. My friend John is fit. He's fit to drop at any moment. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia. If you'd like to join Vista, the Visually Impaired and Sighted Tandem Association, leave your details at the Resource Centre or tell Julia via postbag. And here's a message to you, Julia, from Richard White, who joined Vista on a barrel bike ride, the equivalent of a Boris bike. Unfortunately, he regretted not using an electrical-assisted bike or e-bike to be able to catch up with you.
If you go out um, for a ride with Vista and you're not on a tandem, um, if you want to keep up with him, uh, hire a West Midlands title um, e-bike. Yeah. Because at the end you feel fresh. Whereas the time I went out with the before, um, I had a lovely ride on the way out, and then on the way back I didn't realise they raced each other, and I was struggling to keep up. But uh, they're a lovely bunch of people, and, and um, they have actually, um, we've had previous events in the city yeah. centre and they've been out and supported those. So. Well, yes, please. Oh, well, uh, hi Julia and the rest of the gang, I'll say, um, I'll probably do another visit. I think uh, last time I went on a ride, I think we did about um, 20 miles, and afterwards I said to West Midland Cycle Hire, how many miles can you do? And then he said 25, so I was lucky it was charged up. <laughs> and here's another message to you, Julia, this time from Graham, about your concern about Radio Force presenter for the In Touch programme for the visually impaired, Peter White. Well, regarding the discussion in the studio about what was the uncertainty about what was happening on local radio, I thought it had been well documented by now, and uh, I think people ought to know what was happening. <laughs> so at the risk of repeating, uh, before I do that, by the way, I would just like to um, put Julie right. Peter White has not left the In Touch programme. He's still there. You might have listened on a week when he wasn't, because sometimes he's on holiday, or sometimes they send him abroad to do an item on uh, something which has happened in another country. But most of the weeks you'll find Peter White presenting in touch between 20 to 9 and 9 o'clock on a Tuesday evening. He's not left at all. The proposal is that local radio, or most local radio stations, will only transmit local programmes between 6 in the morning and 2 in the afternoon. Between 2 in the afternoon and 10 o'clock in the evening, they will be regional. After 10 o'clock in the evening to 1 o'clock in the morning, what is currently regional will go national. There are exceptions. Radio London and I think Manchester will still broadcast throughout the day. Radio WM will still broadcast local stations between 6 in the morning and 6 in the evening. I've got an inkling that perhaps CWR will join WM between 2 and 6 in the afternoon, but I'm only guessing. They say it won't affect local news. And they also say that they're not making any financial cutbacks. It's just that they're moving resources to online services. Uh, but at the end of the day, what you actually hear on the radio will not be what you're listening to now. And I can see there are a lot of presenters which will disappear from the airways. I believe they're having to reapply for their own jobs. <laughs> so that's what I thought everybody would know by now. So uh, there you go. Well, Graham, I understand Dan Samble, who did so much to highlight Sheila's achievements on the radio with her battle to get her strength back in her legs following a stroke with a sponsored stepathon and pedalathon, was protesting outside BBC CWR along with other radio presenters on Friday. And any thoughts on the cuts in local radio, please send them into postbag and anything else you'd like to talk about. Please ring us up on 024 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leave a message. Or any other way you'd like to contact us. 
tell us what you've been doing lately. Any holiday companies you recommend, and any thoughts arising from any of the articles on Outlook. Thank you for your messages this week. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Another week's Postbag from Dave. Last week, you'll remember that Margaret started the story of Holy Trinity just off Priory Row, which, unlike the cathedral, escaped the bombs of the Blitz. Now she reads the concluding part. The doom painting covering the chancel arch depicts the Day of Judgment. It was created between 1435 and 1460, probably prompted by an earthquake a portent of the end of the world. It shows the dead rising from their graves and being judged by Christ. On one side, souls await St. Peter at the gates of heaven, and on the other, a mouth to hell, where the evildoers, including clergymen, are seen being cast down by demons. The doom hadn't been in existence for much more than 125 years, before reformers whitewashed it out. Its existence was noted in the late 18th century and in 1831. Shortly afterwards, local artist David G. was paid £25 to restore it. He protected it with a coating of Meglip. Meglip contained aspaltum and bitumen, which, over time, goes black and destabilises paintwork. Add to this the smoke from oil lamps and it is unsurprising that the image began to disappear in the 1860s. In 2002, work began on its recovery. Cleaning took a year done inch by inch with cotton buds. The restoration of the doom not only raised the national profile of Holy Trinity Church, and it also gave Coventry and the nation a new treasure. Trinity is highly decorated and, like many churches, received restoration during the 19th century. Its tower and spire, noted as being shell-like, has received many restorations, starting with the first recorded in 1667, after it collapsed, killing a passing boy. Up until 1914, the spire was repaired 12 times. Its last restoration was in 2001. The Archdeacon's Court was originally a chapel and once used for the ecclesiastical court. The monuments were moved here during the 1854-56 to 56 restoration. One is to Dr. Philemon Holland, the Translator General, who transcribed many of the classics into English. Another is to Reverend Joseph Rann, Trinity's Vicar, who in 1776 published four editions of the works of Shakespeare with copious notes. 
It was during Rand's time in 1773 that Sarah Siddons married in the church. Rand chose not to perform the ceremony for common players, which is ironic as Sarah Siddons became the greatest Shakespearean actress of her time. George Eliot also attended this church. A noted time in the church's history was under Reverend G.W. Clitheroe, who, during the many raids on the city, manned the church roof with his small team, protecting it from incendiary bombs. On recalling the night of the 14th of November 1940, he recalled watching the city burn and likened it to Dante's Inferno. But for the bravery of Clitheroe and his team, Trinity would have burned. Clitheroe's message of defiance and faith hung over the west window on massive banners during the war years. It read, It all depends on me, and I depend on God. The story of Holy Trinity, one of the celebrated three spires of Coventry. Bill jogged our memories last week and started recalling the 1960s and the massive changes brought about by the beaching cuts to our national railway network. But thankfully, many of the closed routes are being restored at last. As Bill explains in the conclusion of this article, written by James Moore. The spirit of the 1990s TV sitcom, Oh Dr. Beeching, saviour of many lines has been heritage railway enthusiasts, run by determined volunteers. Leading the pack was the North Yorkshire Moors Railway, run on a stretch of the Whitby to Pickering and Malton line. It closed on Beeching's recommendation in 1965. Crucially, the track bed was kept intact, enabling reopening in 1973, with steam locomotives still delighting visitors. It is now the nation's busiest heritage line, carrying 350,000 passengers a year, and featured in TV's Heartbeat and the Harry Potter movies. Other heritage lines kept open by devotees include the 22-mile West Somerset Railway on the branch line to Minehead in Somerset, once a vital link to a Butlins holiday camp. The Aberset line, running from Exeter to the sandy seaside resort of Exmouth, was named after the birds, which can be seen flying over the River X estuary from the window of the trains. It narrowly escaped closure in the 1960s, twice after strong local campaigns. And now it's thriving. Passenger numbers are up 140%. Since 2001. Regular user Paul Nero, boss of Radio X, says it's one of the most beautiful rail lines in the UK and keeps coastal Devon linked to the rest of the country. Nearby, there are hopes whole old main line connecting Exeter and Plymouth, made redundant from 1968, could be reinstated after the stretch between Oakhampton and Exeter was reopened to passengers in 2021. Dartmoor Line was brought back to life in a £40 million restoring your railway scheme. Hard Day's Night by the Beatles was number one in the charts in July 1964 when the historic Northumberland Line 
connecting Ashington, Ide and Newcastle, posed to passengers. But the 18-mile route is set to see the light of day again, after ministers recently announced it's to reopen in summer 2024. Six new stations are being built along it, with journey times set to be slashed in half. Northumberland County Council leader and Sanderson says, This is such a transformational scheme, which will bring benefit for residents, businesses and visitors for generations to come. The branch line connecting Bristol to Portis Head on the Severn Estuary which closed in 1964 under Beeching, is also set to reopen, providing a vital link for commuters in an area where housing has increased by 350% in the intervening years. Travel times into the city will be slashed from an hour by car to 17 minutes on the train, with two new stations serving 50,000 people as part of a £160 million project aiming for completion in 2026. Campaigner Alan Matthews, a teenager at the time of the cuts, is overjoyed to see the railway coming back. It's wonderful. After all these years, it will make a huge difference to people here. Fleetwood in Lancashire was Britain's first holiday resort to get a railway in 1840. But the station was closed in 1966 under the Beeching Cups, with passenger services along the line from Poulton stopped in 1970. Now it has been backed by XPM Boris Johnson and has been earmarked as one of nine schemes for rail reopening to receive further funding. Fleetwood MP Pat Smith says that while progress does feel slow, myself and local campaigners are determined to see rail roll back into Fleetwood once again. And connected to the rail network is our opportunity to attract inward investment and jobs to our town. The plans and the green light for further exploration include reopening the Ivanhoe line between Leicester and Burton-upon-Trent and the Barrow Line between Sheffield and Chesterfield. Pitching insisted his cuts were surgery, not mad chopping. These reversals will certainly provide a welcome tonic for communities across the country blighted by his infamous acts. No doubt over the years even more lines will be opened to cope with the ever-increasing demand for travel. We all have pairs of scissors around the house for those numerous little jobs where cutting is necessary and they are undoubtedly manufactured on a massive scale. But one person has made a career of scissor making. Grace Horn is Britain's last bespoke scissor maker who swapped her life in London to go to Sheffield to learn the trade and now has a career at the cutting edge with some of her creations selling for up to £4,000 a pair. Elaine tells us more. How much would you pay for a pair of scissors? I'm sure your answer will not be £4,000 or even 
£500. Last year, Grace gave up caffeine. The 52-year-old was making a pair of miniature scissors and needed her hands to be steady. Coffee gave her tremors, so Grace stopped drinking it. It was the smallest pair of scissors she had ever designed, just four millimetres long, and the project took six months to finish. Part of the trouble was that because the pieces were so tiny, Grace kept losing them and having to start again. Once she lost a little blade for hours until eventually she found it lodged in her eyebrow. Grace is the last traditional scissor maker in the country. Ernest Wright, a company founded in 1902 in Sheffield, also produces them. But Grace is the only person making them bespoke, entirely by hand. She was a knife maker, first getting into blades in the 1990s, after she heard Stan Shaw on the radio. Shaw was a 72-year-old knife-making legend in Sheffield. Grace was a recent university graduate, miserably building pewtered tableware at a workshop in London. She thought he sounded brilliant. So with the complete arrogance of a 22-year-old, handed in her notice, packed her stuff, loaded up her car and moved to Sheffield to camp on his doorstep and persuade him to take her on as an apprentice. Shaw said no, he was too old to have an apprentice. Instead, he handed Grace a box of springs and blades and told her to figure it out for herself. So she did. Years later, they would see each other at knife fairs and Shaw would admit that actually Grace might have been helpful to him. Scissors happened rather by accident. Grace was designing a pocket knife with a pair of clippers built in and found she enjoyed the clipper-making part much more than she did the knife-making. She went to Ernest Wright in Sheffield and asked for some scissor-making lessons. That was ten years ago. She's only made scissors since. My knife-making was really training for my scissor-making, she says. It was love at first sight. Grace speaks about scissors like this a lot, excited and reverential. The interviewer was embarrassed to tell her that the only pair she owned were a battered and blunted kids set from W.H. Smith, costing less than £3. Grace says she has cheap pairs at home too. She just gives hers an extra polish before she uses them. For such simple-looking objects, scissors are tricky to make. First, Grace sketches the design, glues the pattern onto a bar of steel, and cuts it with a saw. Both halves must be cut from the same piece of metal, and both must be identical. Then she grinds the pieces down, curves the blades, shapes the bows, and bores holes through the handles. After that, she pops the pieces into a hot kiln for ten minutes, 
then takes them out and plunges them into cold oil so that they harden. Finally, she cleans and polishes them and slots both halves together. Grace does all this in her workshop, a narrow, abandoned Victorian public loo that she converted herself. Depending on how complicated a design is, the process can take a few days, a few weeks, or a few months. Several times a year, Grace travels to knife fairs around the world and sells her scissors. She takes one showstopper piece, one technical piece, and several practical pieces. The showstopper is, as you'd expect, complicated, intricate, large. It can cost up to £4,000 and is normally bought by a knife collector who is branching out into scissors. The technical piece, around £1,000, is more subtle but very clever and often bought by other makers who can marvel at Grace's technique. Meanwhile, the practical pieces around £500 are simpler and sweet. These have a very specific customer, knife collecting men who just spend a lot of money on blades and want to buy their wives a small present to say sorry. Grace always sells out. Last year at a fair in Atlanta, Georgia, all of her wares were gone within 20 minutes. Spending £4,000 on scissors might sound mad, but when you tot up the hours it takes to make the product, it's less than minimum wage for the designer, and Grace is clear that it's not her full-time employment. She also teaches jewellery and metalwork at Sheffield Hallam University. In the past, she did odd jobs, such as being a tailor in a suit hire company, a housekeeper and a Japanese armour restorer. In artistic communities, she believes there's more kudos in being a full-time maker, but I think we should reclaim the enthusiastic amateur. Until five years ago, Grace universally hated every pair of scissors she had made. She would abandon ideas, throw pieces out, destroy finished products and remake designs over and over again to try to achieve perfection. In her workshop, she has a drawer of gleaming discarded parts, the drawer of broken dreams. Now she's more forgiving. There comes a point in a project when you realise that it's never going to live up to the unrealistic image of perfection that you have in your head. Even with the best skills in the world, it's just not possible. Besides the deceptive trickiness, the unpredictability of creating scissors, that's the joy. If I know I can make them, then there's no point in making them, Grace says. The idea that I might not be able to succeed is the bit that gets me really excited. Grace Horn was interviewed by Maddie Fletcher for an article in the Mail on Sunday magazine. Maybe that's how we should all view life. All challenges are to be 
exciting. So, not all scissors are utilitarian. There's a real craft in making a bespoke pair. Like scissors, we probably don't think too much about slippers. Just wear a nice, comfortable pair that suits your needs. Little do we realise that slippers became a status symbol, as told by this article in this article by Wesley Doug- Wendy Douglas, read by Sue. Wearing house shoes outside was once a sign that you had given up on life. Yes, really. Those days are over. The school run can turn into a last-minute panic. So it's no surprise parents often take a relaxed approach, sartorially speaking, to this early morning ritual. Active wear, hoodies and trainers, are the unofficial uniform of the school gate, whether you're about to do a hot yoga class or not. But that is where the line has generally been drawn. Until now. For if the Prime Minister's wife, Akshata Murti, can take the children to school in a pair of fluffy slippers, we all have permission to really let go. But before you trot off in your ratty fleece slippers, take note. Miss Murti's J.W. Anderson designer ones retail at £570. In fact, this was a considered fashion choice, and she's not the only public figure rocking this ultra-relaxed look. Polished celebrities from Jennifer Lopez to Kendall Jenner and Hayley Bieber to social media star Emma Chamberlain are stepping out in their comfiest footwear and house shoes have been championed by designers including Simone Rocha, Dolce & Gabbana and Acne Studios. Fashion loves to subvert the norm, and slippers are the latest item to get an upgrade, with the help of soft shearling, faux fur, quilting, and gigantic price tags. The benefits of rocking slippers in the real world are obvious. In most cases they're flat, so you can comfortably wear them all day. There are no laces or buckles, so you can slip them on and go. And when it comes to attitude, they're full of unbothered breeziness. But how did they become such a status symbol? It probably goes back to when Gucci released its fur-lined mule loafers in 2015. These backless leather flats were everywhere, giving an alternative take on a preppy classic. Since then, the pandemic had us all working from home and taking a much more relaxed approach to getting dressed. We got used to wearing leggings and sweatshirts and got used to seeing everyone else wearing loungewear too. The line between what we wear when we're alone and the version of ourselves we present to others began to blur and it looks like it's staying fuzzy. Of course, though, if you wear them outside and they cost £570, are they actually slippers? Do they exist as slippers in the house, but go through some kind of transubstantiation process as you cross the threshold to go outside? According to the Cambridge Dictionary, a slipper is a type of soft, comfortable shoe for wearing inside the house. So by definition, if they're wearable outdoors, 
Maybe they need a new name. Semantics aside, if you're keen to style up some slippers, the good news is you don't have to spend A-list money to get the look. For a cosy meal with a practical sole, go to UGG and its fuzz sugar slide, £100. Or for an upscale take, C by Chloe's Gemma, backless loafers, £250 in cream shearling, feature a blingy gold ring detail. Style stars love fur-lined Birkenstocks, but Zara's dupe will do nicely at £25.99. Don't be afraid to make a statement. H&M's hot pink fluffy cross strap slippers, £14.99, are a joy. Or Skin's quilted slippers, £64.20 at Netta Porter, will give you some high-end edge. To nail the preppy slipper look, Marks and Spencer's Borg Mule Slippers come with gold horse bit embellishment. Fashion doesn't often give us permission to be comfortable, so embrace it now while you can. Whoever would have thought slippers could be a status symbol. Now it's story time, and Ali's back with another of Cynthia Townsend's short stories. This one, the one that didn't get away. When me and my brother Ashley were younger, my dad used to take us both fishing by the canal. I must admit, my brother was into it more than I was. I just found it really boring. It was usually during the school holidays, and mum and dad would take it in turns to take time off work and spend a day with us, and organise something interesting for us to do. When it was Dad's turn, he used to do the things that were always geared more towards my brother's interests, not mine, hence the fishing. On this particular day, it had been raining the night before, so the ground was muddy and still a bit wet, which didn't go down too well with me as I was wearing my new trainers, and they got absolutely covered in mud. We were also sitting on really horrible canvas chairs, which were not meant to be sat on for hours on end. I was extremely uncomfortable and bored. I know for a fact my mum dreaded Dad taking me and Ashley fishing, as he would keep his maggots in the fridge the night before. Yes, they were in a secure container, but the fact that they were maggots, alive and wriggling around, was just a horrid thought, especially if one of them escaped. I hated being asked to put the maggot on the end of the hook. In fact, I refused to do it. Ashley called me a big girl, which is what I was, so no insult there. I just didn't like to do it. The maggots, as creepy and wriggly as they were, to me were still alive and didn't deserve to be skewered with a hook and then drowned in water waiting to be eaten alive by the fish. Plus there was the fishing itself. The same hook that the poor little maggot was dangled from was then the source of pain for the poor fish that happened to take the bait. I took no pleasure whatsoever in the whole fishing thing. If I was forced to take part, I'd have to get it all set up for me, so all I had to do was sit on the chair and put the rod in the water. I guess the only fun thing was bringing the dog with us, because when I inevitably lost interest in what I was doing, I'd take the dog for a walk along the canal and play with him. 
I'd be given my orders before I left, though. Don't talk to any strangers. Don't let the dog go near the water. And don't go too far. You know the score. I'd been away for about half an hour, and when I got back, my brother had a face like thunder. Dad had caught a couple of tiny gudgeon, which I was reliably informed was a small fish of some sort, and my brother had caught none. This made me laugh because all the time in the car going there, he was telling me what a great fisherman he was and how he would catch more fish than me. I honestly couldn't give a fig, but it meant a lot to my brother to beat me, as he rarely beat me at anything, unless he cheated, as that's the only way he'd get the upper hand. What is it about little brothers and cheating? When I got back to where they were fishing, as I had the cleanest hands, Dad asked if I could get the sandwiches out that Mum had so lovingly prepared for us. Mum knew exactly what we liked. Dad had ham and tomato, Ashley had chicken, and I had cheese and tomato. We also had a couple of crisps each, and a can of pop. If we were really lucky, we'd get a slice of cake as well. Especially if we went fishing the week after Mum had done some baking. She made some beautiful cakes and never skimped on the jam or buttercream. Dad and Ashley took their rods out of the water while we took a break, to have our lunch and Dougal would do his best to catch some meat or cheese from us. He was a show dog. He liked to show others how good he was at begging. He was only a little dog, a Cairn Terrier, and he'd learned the art of sitting up and begging with his little front paws in front of him. He looked like the canine version of Oliver Twist. Passers-by used to stop and say, Oh, look at him. And when he did it, it made him do it even more and he'd keep the pose up for as long as it took for one of us to cave in and give him some of our food. Once we'd eaten our food, it was back to the fishing, and I'd literally run out of excuses not to give it a proper go. Dad put the line on for me, and Ashley sorted out the maggot. All the time he was muttering, I don't know why she's bothering, she won't catch anything. Well, that was my intention, I didn't want to catch a poor little fish and cause him pain. Will you stop going on about causing the fish pain? They don't feel anything. It doesn't hurt them, said Ashley. It does hurt them. A blooming great hook caught on their lip. It doesn't hurt. How do you know? Have you asked them? Ashley was laughing at me. Typical girl. They know nothing. Once the maggot was in place, I threw my line in the water and sat like a ripe lemon, wishing it was soon home time so I could have a wash and go down to my friend Claire's house, as she got a new hamster, and I was desperate to meet him. Within five minutes, my line started to move, and it felt like something was tugging at it. Dad, I think I've got my line caught in some weeds or something, because it's moving funny. Dad came over. It's not weeds, he said. I think you've got a bite. Go on, reel it in. I furiously started to reel it in, and a fish got closer and closer. My brother's face was an absolute picture. Not only had I caught a fish, which he hadn't managed to do, but it was a pretty decent-sized perch, which was bigger than anything my dad had ever caught in all the years he'd been fishing. Ashley was seething. He was calling me all the names under the sun, 
and he even kicked his chair and his fishing box over in disgust. One for the family album, I think, said Dad, and he got out his camera and took a photo of me holding the fish. I continued to hold the fish while Dad carefully took the hook out of his mouth, and I placed him back in the net and then put the net back in the water so he could swim off. As you can imagine, the journey back home in the car was a triumphant return for me. Ashley was sitting in the front seat next to my dad. He didn't want to sit next to me. He couldn't bear to breathe the same air as me. But I was loving the fact that once again, I'd beaten him. And what made the victory sweeter, I'd beaten him at something which he thought he'd every right to be good at, as he was the one with his own rod and tackle, and I was a mere girl who was using a tatty old spare rod. All the way home I kept asking my dad questions like, So dad, what kind of fish was it I caught? How big do you think my fish was? Remind me dad, how many fish did Ashley catch today? Ashley was in a sulk for the rest of the night and would do anything to avoid me. As soon as I'd had my wash, I was off to my friend Claire's house to see her new hamster and tell her all about the fishing. I thought you didn't like fishing, she said. I don't. But just for one day, I made an exception because it annoyed my brother and that's something that was well worth the sacrifice. From fiction to fact. Last week, Dave and Graham were in Liverpool and visited the Arts Exhibition about the Chinese community. And this week, they continue their short visit to the city. I asked Moira and John, who was in the former new wave punk band Yachts, about the film they made about John Lennon, and we discussed the connection between fine arts and music. You've also made a film about John Lennon, understand, both of you. Is that right? Yeah, we made a film. John Lennon was in it a little bit. It was about Liverpool old school bands. Yes. Well, what about the, the film you made about John Lennon, please, John? Well, as Moira said, it really wasn't about John Lennon and stuff, that's just the title. It was about musicians who went yeah. to art schools yeah. and used art school as a platform to get into the yeah. music industry in some way. Yeah. And we were just looking at the question, um, some, some people went to art school to become an artist and accidentally ended up becoming a musician yes. because of the social sides of things yes. at the art school, whereas others went directly to art school uh, with the idea of becoming a musician yeah. in the first place because back in those days there were no um, fame academies there was nothing like the Lipper yeah. Academy here where you yeah. could study those kind okay. of art forms the only arts you could study really was a fine art in an art school which had a bit of, kind of uh, a broad basis yeah. of interest so if you went to a fine art course with the idea of becoming a musician you might well find other people there who were doing exactly the same thing and together okay. you can form a group. 
Right, so do you think you can tell me about Moira and John, please? How do you know them? Um, know them on uh, Facebook. Okay, and John's a former sort of singer with a group called Yachts. And also the singer of uh, It's Immaterial. And his wife's an artist, Moira. That's, that's right, they run a company called The Sound Agents that put on various art things, yeah. That's it. We're walking through Liverpool. There's a big, high hotel. What's that called? Yeah, Shankly Hotel. Oh, they're named after Bill Shankly. Yeah, that, that's correct. There's also a rooftop terrace where I've seen the uh, Pure McCartney play live for part of the year. Beatles, Beatles weekend. Graham's friend Lisa and her band recreated the scene where the Beatles played a rooftop gig at the end of the film, Let It Be. They did it on top of the Shankly Hotel. Bill Shankly, whom the hotel was named after, helped Graham's future head teacher, David Kershaw, at Cowden Court School when he was an aspiring footballer. Just after Bill gave David the shattering news that he wouldn't make it as a footballer, he suggested to him that he should take up teaching. As David was unable to read and write, Bill paid for him to have an education and then paid for his teacher training. David later went on to turn around the then problem school, Cowden Court School, and then became a professional troubleshooter to other schools. He wrote a book called Thanks Shank, which he talked about at the Monday Club and on Outlook. Mr Kershaw was known as Kermit by his pupils, and when Graham did well at school, he put a little frog sticker at the bottom of his work. It's evening in Liverpool, and we're going for a night out, me and Graham. So, where are we off to, Graham? And go see the questions in the, down the cavern. That's what, the cavern? I think it might be in the lounge, not in the actual cavern, I think. Right, but it's next door, but below. Next okay, door, yeah. that sounds good to me. Great, is there a support act? Yeah, there is. A, um, a girl called Amy. Sounds nice. I look forward to that. Okay, let's go up the cabin. Well, we're in Matthew Street now, which has the home of the cavern where the Beatles were discovered by Brian Epstein. And here is a statue of Scylla Black with her arms outstretched, like she did when she sang surprise, surprise. And we're outside the Cavern Club at the moment, about to go in soon. I'm speaking to Amy. What do you think about being at the Cavern Club tonight? Uh, it was incredible. Like I say, uh, like I said on stage, I played the Cavern open mic, uh, sort of hoping to get to the other side and play the stage. So it was really nice to be on, on the stage today and have the opportunity to do that. I spoke to Amy's mum. Um, yeah, she's been singing since she was about 11. Her granddad bought her a little karaoke machine, yeah. and that's how she started. And then she entered a few talent competitions and won them, and she won some support slots. And then from now, she's now a signed uh, songwriter. I then spoke to Diane, the sister of the keyboard player of the Christians. Yeah, but it's so lovely to see you. Uh, 
fantastic to be in the cavern. I've been here before to watch the Christians and I love it. It's really the home of the Beatles of course. Here's Bobby of the Christians. Hello, this is Bobby from the Christians. Hello to the people of Outlook. The next morning, Graham took me on the train to West Kirby to Tansky's Cafe. It had a view of the lake and beyond was the River Dee. Between the lake and the river was a jetty that people were walking along. It looked as if people were walking on water. I spoke to a gentleman in the cafe. Can you describe the scene out there, please? Okay, well, you've got, where we are. Right, you've got the West Kirby Marine Lake, and we're opposite um, the Cluidian Hills, which end at the, uh, at the point of air. Um, and then, uh, as I say, on a, on a clear day, you can see beyond the point of air, and you can see there's like three humps the Great Orm, the Little Orm, and Pemmamau Mountain. They look like they're in a line, but they're not. Uh, now, now I can see in, in the middle of the lake out there. I can see people that seem to be walking on the water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you explain that, please? They're just walking around the edge of the lake. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a, uh, a path, um, which uh, I mean, on a high tide, the the, the the river will come over that. Well, we walked across the path between the lake and the mouth of the River Dee towards the lifeboat station. It was there for a purpose, to save the lives of those who didn't time their walking plenty of time. A dog walker called Diane explained on the windy day that the lifeboat people were called out a lot. Out. They're always out. I mean, we have a station here on that you can see the station over there, um, and they're always out because people don't realise the high tides. They think the path is protected, and it's not. It's covered by the tides. Well, Graham and I are in Liverpool Station now, Liverpool Lime Street Station, and we're standing by the statue of Ken Dodd with his tickling stick and Bessie Braddock, MP, holding an egg. Possibly to do with a little lime. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, anyway, thanks a lot for taking me around uh, Liverpool and also West Kirby as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a great time, yeah. It really has. Thank you very much. So it's cheerio from me, Dave Monks from Liverpool, and cheerio from Graham. Bye. Bye. Dave and Graham's time in Liverpool brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook. So for the team and me, it's goodbye till next week.